0: Hi, my name is Tracy Coral, and welcome to Indispensable People. I'm a wife, mom, teacher, pastor, and missionary, and I believe that every person should have the opportunity to know Christ, grow in Him, and serve Him with the gifts that He has given, no matter their ability. Over 65 million Americans have a disability. That's 25% of the population. However, over 80% of them are not inside the walls of our church. Let's dive into those hard topics, biblical foundations, perceptions, and world-changing ideas. Hello, welcome. I am so glad you have chosen to join me. Today, we're going to talk about frequently asked questions. A little over six months ago, I put on a training in my area in Ohio, and I asked those who registered to share a question with me that they had that was kind of like their top question about serving people with disabilities. And so I'm going to share some of those questions with you and the answers. I love hearing and seeing these kinds of questions, first of all, because it helps me to see where people's brains are at, what they're thinking about this kind of ministry and how it might work within their church. And sometimes it really helps to share their biggest fears and concerns when doing that. We're going to start off with my favorite question that um, people ask quite often, actually. And it simply says, how do you interact with people with special needs? Well, I have a really, really simple answer, but I also know that there's a lot of context behind that question. So first, let's talk about um, the simple answer. First of all, how do you interact with someone with a disability? You treat them as you want to be treated. You uh, need to learn and know the person and grow in their relationship, but um it goes down to respect and treating them the way that they want to be treated. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there's a lot of thought behind that question more than just the general direct what do I do? Do I say hello? Do I speak it? differently? Do I use my tone in a different way? What if they can't understand me? What if they can't respond? Those are all things that people are thinking about. They're they're asking this question because of their concern to want to properly interact, not because they're downgrading that person or they're thinking less of them. It's actually that they're giving them more consideration. So Whenever you don't know someone, you don't know what their needs are, you don't know what their abilities are, really, you just want to go about it the way that you would anyone else. Then, once you know that individual, maybe you learn that um, they use sign language to communicate. Maybe you could attempt to use sign language. Or you watch and take their lead. Are they lip readers? Are they... um going to need you to write it down? Are there different ways that you communicate? Is there someone that can translate the sign language for you? Another option is in consideration of someone who may have a visual impairment or blind. Um, When you greet them and you come up to them, You need to let them know verbally that you're there. Uh, You know, you don't want to run in and give them a hug and they don't know you're there and startle them, but um, letting them know, hey, it's so-and-so, and and I just wanted to say hello, and a great way to end that is to also let them know, all right, it was great talking to you today. I'm going to head out because you let them know that you've left because if they can't see that you've left, they may consider continue the conversation and you're not even there. So we fully understand that you add to that the possibility of an intellectual disability and they may or may not be able to understand what you're saying or be able to um, communicate back to you in the way that maybe you would expect. But here's the deal. You treat everyone like you would anyone else. You can adjust your verbiage and use more simple language or concrete language. But you don't want to speak down to them. If it's a grown adult, you don't want to speak to them like a child. If it is a child, you're going to speak to them like a child. And um, that just shows respect for who they are um, as you're speaking to them. So we're going to get ready to move into the second question, which really is a completely different direction than the first question. The second question that I often hear is how do you answer questions from families when they are questioning God about the disability of their child? Well, first, that is a whole big bag of gobbledygook that um, you're going to have to work through. First, you also need to consider what does that family know about God? What is their relationship to God? And that will help you to help them. First, we need to know that whatever they're feeling, whatever they're experiencing is real. We don't want to undermine their feelings. We don't want to lessen their feelings. We want to validate how they feel, but at the same time, point them to Jesus. It's okay to have emotions. Our God is a big God and he can handle those emotions. He even gave them to us. But again, then you point back to God because we have a hope. Um, Hebrews tells us we have a hope and it's an anchor and it is strong. Um, But. Again, I want you to remember to consider your verbiage and your approach. If they are unchurched people and we use Christianese, we're going to confuse them and make it more difficult to understand. If they have a relationship with God, but maybe it's in the early stages and they're just figuring things out. Maybe they just need a perspective on what God says about people with disabilities and that um, he still has a plan and a purpose for their lives. So you're going to reassure them that they're created in God's image and that he has a purpose for their lives. Every person is created with a purpose and made in the image of God, and they are not here without a plan. And those are reassuring words to someone who is questioning why their child may or may not be experiencing the difficulties that they are. The next question we're going to answer is actually um, one of my favorites. I love to strategize and figure out how people learn and what helps them to understand best. And so the question is, how do you help individuals understand the Word of God? First of all, we need to know this is a very vast question. It's vast because disability is vast right there isn't any one particular thing that you could put everything in a box and say this works and this is how we understand people with disabilities um so it's a vast question but just like you and i we learn differently right i am a visual learner i am a hands on learner i can listen to something, I can read something, but I will learn much, much more if I am participating in my learning. So you want to take that into consideration, right, as we're considering how we will approach teaching someone with a disability. And that's no different than any other person that you'd come across. One of the best ways I suggest doing that is teaching through the five senses, right, and using the modalities like movement and music, the um, I had the opportunity while I was taking my master's classes to study about how the brain learns. And listen, the more connections our brain can make to the topic or information we're trying to retain, the more chance we'll have to actually retain it. And so we want to give them opportunities to hear it, to see it, to touch it, even if there's a possibility to taste um those are all great ways to learn and that really works for everyone another thing to consider is always assume competence don't just assume they don't know first of all if they can't respond to you that does not mean that they don't understand a understanding can be in process just um, looks different for each person. If I have a problem processing information, I may not be able to verbalize it back to you to let you know that I've learned it. Um, If I am someone who doesn't read, that doesn't mean I can't retain and learn information. It just means that I might need to be shown and shared that information in a different way. Always remember to keep things simple. Repeat and present in as many ways as possible. Listen, I can build on simplicity, right? It's the same idea of, of, listen, I will take the cold over the hot any day, right? Because when I'm cold, I can put more layers on. When I'm hot, it, it, it only gets so appropriate when I'm taking those layers off, Okay, and it's the same thing with building knowledge. If we start at a simple base and we know that our people are learning, then we can add to that base. We've not lost anything and we've not created confusion by doing that the next suggestion that I would share is exactly what Jesus does, right? He built relationships with his people, especially his disciples, and that's how he taught them. So when you get to know the person that you're serving, you get to meet those needs. You get to see how they tick, how they work, and then be able to capitalize that on um th- those opportunities. So, for example, I had a little guy who attended my church, and he was diagnosed with autism. And numbers was his thing. Like if you could talk about numbers, figure out math things, anything like that, his interest was piqued. But if you approach things in a different way, just by reading something or listening to something that didn't have those numbers attached to it, we kind of lost him. So we were teaching him about Noah and the ark. And um, one of my super great buddies had came up with the idea of getting some graph paper, and they started to map out the ark and using the cubits and what scripture tells us of how things were built for the ark. And he was just totally involved into it, super excited about it. And I guarantee you that information stuck with him. So last but not least, and Granted, this is not an extensive um, amount of information, but add to that that um, understanding the person leads to a connection. Okay, And I will listen to people that I have a connection with more readily and more willingly, and I will take their information for truth when I have a connection with them. So when we understand and we teach in ways people learn, and have a connection with them. Our brain can do great things with the information that we are given. This is a great uh, next question. Again, completely different from the topic of the previous question, but um, many of our individuals that we interact with Um, tend to focus on some negative things, whether that's a bad friendship that they've had, a relationship that they've had, um, a family member passing away, whatever it is, um, that is a huge topic of conversation. So the question is, if someone talks negatively consistently about their past, reoccurringly, do you let them talk about it or do you change the subject? So here we go back to um they're saying something they're feeling something this is real to them. So we want to validate their feelings, understanding and saying, "Listen, that really stinks and I am so sorry that that happened to you." We're not going to dismiss them, right? Because again, these are real. These are feelings that they're having. Then maybe consider redirecting them. You know that they like um Playing certain board games. So you could talk to them about those board games. Um, if you're in an environment in which you can even play those games, that would be great. Um, you need to understand that there are certain things that are possibly triggering That. um, So it can be environmentally or situation driven. For example, um, if you've ever sat in a classroom of kids and you say, okay, what are your prayer requests? Okay, you're going to hear things like, um, can you play for my grandma who died when I was a baby? Or about a dog that you used to have a long time ago. So um, sometimes prayer time or altar time can trigger those feelings and those emotions. One great thing to do is teach about prayer. Teach about what that altar time is for. They can absolutely lay their burdens down um, with God through prayer and at the altar. And um, But that doesn't mean... That God only takes care of bad things through prayer and the altar. So you can take time to teach about those opportunities. Another thing is you want to consider their background. Um, Are they living with family? Are they living in a group home? How much support do they have? How much opportunity do they actually have to discuss their feelings? If needed, you might need to give them opportunities to share a little bit more. If that's not an opportunity for them in their day-to-day life. Another thing to consider is, is that particular behavior, the topic that is repetitively brought up, is that attention-seeking? And if so, you're still going to do some of the very similar things. You're going to validate it and you're going to redirect. So attention-seeking is they say something, they get sad, that means they get a response and attention because of it and if that's the reason that they're saying it or doing it then you want to validate and move on as quickly as possible with a redirection Um, something else to consider that um anyone special needs or not can focus on an experience um Listen, they you talk about the grief process and that's a lifelong process, right? There are steps that you move through and things that you deal with. And if you've ever dealt with any kind of grief, you know that sometimes it can pop up in different moments because maybe something triggered you to remember that person. And so um, it's possible that they're just working through something and we just need to be understanding. Um, it's okay to direct them to Jesus, maintain respect with them. Don't downgrade their feelings. Don't diminish who they are and what their feelings are. That's why validation is so important. And sometimes we need to remember when we build relationships and friendships in life, we walk through that junk of life with our friends. That's a part of building relationships. And it's no different when you're forming friendships and relationships with people with disabilities. One last question we are going to answer today is, how do you handle a meltdown? I think one of the main things that people ask on a regular basis is, starts with, what do I do if, or I have this kid who, and it comes with some big story where some crazy things might have happened. Um, First and foremost, we need to remember that behavior is a form of communication, is the meltdown happening because they're tired is it happening because the the sounds are too loud the lights are too bright there's too much chaos going on what is what is going on that's causing that's triggering that meltdown because um that is going to be if you can be able to remove that um trigger or take the person away from that trigger it will be very beneficial. Um, Another thing is to stay calm, right? Whenever you rise, they're gonna rise above. So you want to make sure that you don't respond in a yelling or um, big way, because then they're going to feel like they need to respond in a yelling or big way. So you wanna protect that so that you protect their emotions. In addition to that, you want to catch things before it gets too far. Honestly, the best thing to do is to catch a meltdown before a meltdown happens. Um, We do that by knowing what things that person responds to well, what things they don't respond to well, what they like, what they dislike, what makes them feel comfortable and uncomfortable. And if we start to see some of those things, then we can help the person before we get to the point of meltdown. And that is really what's ideal. Now, let's talk about if it gets to the point where it's too, too far. If it gets to the part that's too far, your number one thing is to remove anyone else out of the room. You don't want to provide an audience, but you also want to and you also want to keep those individuals safe. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to clear as much space so the individual that is having a behavioral meltdown, you're going to give them a safe space to be in. Um, Once that is done, you're going to get their caregiver or their parent who might know how to more properly handle this. In ministry, we do not have the same allowances as a school or a clinical. I don't have um, a, a an IEP or a service plan that tells me that I'm allowed to do such and such in those types of situations. So we don't put our hand on the person. Um, we don't um, do anything that could potentially cause them harm, which is why we clear the space, give them room, and then have someone get their loved one, their caregiver, um, who can have those abilities to do the things that we cannot in ministry. Add to that, you wanna make sure that you are not alone with any individual in ministry ever. It's just um the right thing to do in any situation, whether it's special needs ministry or kids ministry or youth ministry, you want to maintain that layer of protection for that individual and for yourself. Um, Also know that you can work through a situation, safety is gonna be first, you're gonna protect everyone involved, Um, but knowing afterwards that it is so very important that you let that individual know that they are loved, that they are cared for, and that you are still going to continue to love them and care for them or be a part of their life. It's very important to maintain that relationship. Wow. That is all the questions that we have time for today. I hope some of those questions kind of rang true in your thoughts and in your questions or answered some things that maybe you hadn't thought of or situations that you've not come across. It is interesting to see what everyone is thinking and where they're coming from and where they're going. And in our next episode, we're going to answer some more questions and hopefully help you where you're at. Do I know everything about disability ministry? Do I have all the answers? Have I done everything perfectly? I have absolutely not. But we are going to continue this conversation so that people of all abilities can have the opportunity to know Christ, grow in Him, and serve Him with the gifts that He has given them.